Mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text today is going to be taken from the reading we heard in the Gospel of John. You may be seated. We begin with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, what a joyful day this is in which we celebrate the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. For you have taken away our sins and placed them on Christ who died in our place and rose again for our salvation. On this day, O Lord, we pray that you would grant to us your Holy Spirit so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. He is risen. Hallelujah, and so what? <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> that seems a little flippant, but I have to tell you, a number of years ago, I was, I was floored by that attitude uh, that I received from a friend of mine in which I was at a time in which I was talking with her about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this was a friend of mine uh, from high school. We'd gone to the same uh, Christian, it was a Lutheran high school in Denver, Colorado. We went there together, uh, and she had since... Uh, graduation, she had since left the faith. And we were having a conversation about this, and, and I was telling her that I, I remained a Christian, I have remained in the faith, because I could not get around the fact that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. At one point in history, this man who was dead came back to life. And it's this resurrection of Jesus that, that gave me hope, and it gave me faith. And so I asked her, if this were true, if Jesus had historically risen from the dead, walked out of the tomb roughly 2,000 years ago, would that change your perspective? And this is what she said to me. This is basically what she said to me. Even if he did rise from the dead, it would not matter to me because it would have no real bearing on my life. Now, I've wrestled with that answer for a long time. This, this friend of mine, I think she is, she is very insightful and she is very thoughtful and, and I, and I uh, really enjoy my conversations with her. But I was really shocked by this because this resurrection of Jesus, in, in my mind, changes everything. It changes everything, certainly for me, and it changes everything, I think, uh, for the world. And she could just be so dismissive of it. And not dismissive in like a, in like a heartless way, but just like, this is what people believe, I don't believe it, not that big of a deal. What do we do with it? So I really wrestled with this why we should care about the resurrection question for quite some time. And what I want to do with you today is I want to talk to you about why the resurrection of Jesus Christ matters for you. Why does this matter? And there's sort of two things I'm hoping for here today. First, if you are here and you believe this, that this is your hope, you trust the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, you trust Jesus for your salvation, and this is a day of rejoicing and celebration for you, then what I hope is that this uh, message is going to give you a little more confidence and joy and, and confirm you more in your faith. But if you're here this morning, uh, and you don't usually come to church, and you're here more as a skeptic, you come because it's a tradition, or maybe you're just kind of interested in what Easter's all about, or you're here today and you don't really buy this stuff, uh, you think that religion is sort of the reason we have all the problems in the world right now, <laughs> maybe you're not as wrong about that as, as I might sometimes think, uh, but you're here and you don't really buy into the whole Christianity thing. What I'm hoping to do for you this morning is give you something to chew on, give you something really to think a little bit more about why we think the resurrection of Jesus matters. And what I want to encourage you to do is reach out to me. I, I offer this every Easter. Reach out to me 
uh, and we can talk more. You can send me some emails. We can talk that way. Maybe we can have lunch or coffee or, or go to the local watering hole. Whatever it is you want, it's on me, and we can discuss these things further. But I think that what we need to leave here this morning knowing is that the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it changes everything. And it most certainly matters for all of us here, and it matters for the whole world. So there's two things why I think you need to recognize that this matters. The first thing is this. It is true. It actually happened. Now, there's a lot of debate about that. Of course, there's always debate about everything in our world uh, right now. And there are many people who would say Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. But there is one incontrovertible fact that we have to wrestle with. Now, I say incontrovertible. Uh, people, there's controversy over. But only the most ardent skeptics will deny that on that Easter morning, the tomb was empty. The body of Jesus was not in that tomb. So the question arises, where is it? Where is the body of Jesus? Now we have written down for us some people who claim to be eyewitnesses of what went on that morning and those who talked to the eyewitnesses and recorded what took place. And they tell us that they think this is what happened. That Jesus came out alive. One of those eyewitnesses is a guy by the name of John. John wrote the book of John. Very creative title there. And John says this, and we heard the reading earlier. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran in, and uh, so she ran. And she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. We read then about John and, and Peter running to the tomb, and John writing down for us that he was faster than Peter, which I'm sure Peter loved. And they got to the tomb, and they too found it was empty, and they left confused. Well, I want to suggest to you that the tomb was empty because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Historically. Actually. Now, my friend, for her, this is not very convincing. For her, she did not feel as though the historical, historical reality of this mattered much. And maybe that's where you sit as well. But at least let me say this to you today. It is a good place to start the conversation. It's a good place for us to begin. Because quite frankly, if Jesus is dead and in a tomb somewhere, if his bones are scattered somewhere and we don't know where they are, then here's the reality. This whole conversation is pointless. We're wasting our time by being here today. For if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are of all people to be most pitied. In fact, this is what's kind of shocking, is, is when you go to the Bible and you read it, what it suggests to you is this, is that this is true because Jesus rose again. This book is true, these teachings are true, what you find in the Scriptures are true because of Jesus' resurrection. But if He is not alive... If he's still dead, this whole thing is false. We should go somewhere else. We could have slept in this morning. There was a debate years ago uh, on TV between two uh, prominent kind of pop scientists. One was uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy. Perhaps you've heard of Bill Nye the Science Guy. And the other guy was a guy by the name of Ken Ham. Ken Ham is a, a creation science guy from the organization Answers in Genesis. And they were debating all kinds of things about faith and, and the age of the world and dinosaurs and can we trust the accounts of the Bible and all this kind of stuff. And at one point in the debate, 
Bill Nye looked at Ken Ham, and he said to him this, is there any evidence that I could present to you that would make you deny your faith, that would make you deny the scripture? And Ken Ham looked at him and said confidently and firmly, no, I believe that the Bible is the word of God, and you can't give me anything that would change my mind. And this is a bold statement. And God bless Ken Ham for taking a stand for what he thought was true. But there's a problem with it. That way of thinking is not actually how the Bible tells us to think. The Bible tells us if Christ is dead somewhere, that's all the evidence you need. This whole thing is false. St. Paul, one of the uh, witnesses of the resurrection of Christ in a rather unique way, but he witnessed the resurrection, or the resurrected Christ, I should say. He says this. If Christ is in the tomb, we are of all people to be most pitied because we have been found to be misrepresenting God. The Bible says test him. Listen, if he's dead somewhere, this is false. But if he's alive, then it changes everything. There's no middle ground here. It's either true or it isn't. He's either dead or alive. It is black or white. There is no middle gray area between being dead and being alive. I don't even know what a middle gray area between being dead and being alive would look like. I have a hint of it because I'm a Colorado Rockies baseball fan and I get an idea. You know, they're there, but they're not really living. Uh, you can laugh, but you Padres fans have been there for a long time too. Um, but there's no middle ground here. It's true or it isn't. Now, I keep making the claim that it's true, but how do we know? Do we, have, do we have proof? Do we have evidence? We don't have a camera that was there watching him walk out of the tomb or something like this. Well, we don't have all day. You do want to go get your omelet. So I'm going to give you three questions I think you need to ask as we think through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Three questions that help us get to uh, the evidence for the resurrection. And there's plenty more than this. I'm not going to be exhaustive here today. That's why you need to reach out to me so we can talk about this some more. But here's three questions I want you to leave asking here today. The first one is this. If it's not true... Where did Christianity come from? If Jesus Christ is dead somewhere, where does Christianity come from? Because there's one thing none of us can in any way deny, is that for the last 2,000 years, there has been this faith called Christianity, which has uh, claimed its existence on the basis of the resurrection of this man. Christianity has existed for 2,000 years, confessing that the tomb is empty. Where did that start? Well, it's very obvious that it started with people we call the apostles and the disciples going around and claiming that he rose from the dead. If they were wrong, then, or if they didn't actually do this, if they didn't actually say this, where did it begin? Now, we know that they did go around and say these things. They did go around claiming that they had seen the guy dead on Friday alive for many days afterwards. They did go around preaching. Now, somebody might say, Sure, but that doesn't make it true. After all, there's a lot of religious people out there who teach a lot of religious things that are not true and they're manipulative and they're, and they're trying to sort of control people around them. And, and that is a fact. In fact, th there's a great guy, not a great guy, but a, a cult leader uh, by the name of L. Ron Hubbard. You know L. Ron Hubbard? L. Ron Hubbard, a uh, uh, Christian uh, science fiction novelist who turned his science fiction into a very popular and wealthy religion called Scientology. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard once said, if you want to become wealthy and rich, start a religion. Well, there's a dude who practiced what he preached, all right? 
uh, and he did, and he got very wealthy, and now he's got Tom Cruise. So, uh, what he says, though, is that if you want to become rich, you start a religion. Well, if that's why they went around preaching the resurrection of Jesus, these guys failed. They did not get rich quick on preaching the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, they got the opposite. They were brutally crucified. They were murdered. They were stoned. They were attacked. Some of them were fed to lions for proclaiming that they'd seen the risen Lord. So that's the second question you need to ask yourself. Why were those claiming to have seen Jesus risen from the dead willing to die for their claim? First, where did the church come from? And second, why were those preaching it willing to die for it? Third, the question I think you need to ask is this. We've addressed it a bit already. Where's the body? If Jesus is not risen, what did happen to the body that morning? This is a fact of history that the tomb was empty. But how could that be? Well, there's all kinds of theories that have been presented. Some would suggest that Jesus didn't really die on the cross when they had whipped him and scourged him and nailed him to the tree and pierced him in the side. He just, you know, passed out from exhaustion. And then they put him in the tomb, and then on Easter morning, he woke up and stretched a little bit and pushed a massive rock away and walked out. That one doesn't hold a whole lot of water. Some people would suggest that uh, the disciples stole the body. But if the disciples stole the body, why would they have done it? Perhaps to go around and spread the hoax that he had risen from the dead. But why would they do that? Probably to get rich and famous and all this kind of stuff, and, and they failed. And wouldn't one of the disciples, at least at one point, when they were about to throw him into the lion's den or crucify them upside down, don't you think one of them would have let in on the fact that the whole thing was fake? But none of them did, because they saw him risen. Maybe it was the Jewish leadership who wanted Jesus uh, to take the body so that they could prevent the disciples from doing anything else. But that wouldn't make sense at all. Because when the disciples went around preaching the resurrection of Jesus, which they didn't want them to do, all they would have had to have said was, we have the body. He's not, he's not alive. We have the body. They didn't say that. Some people suggest the Romans took the body. There's a long list here, guys. Uh, some people say the Romans took the body. But why would the Romans take the body? To show how ineffective they were at, at killing people? No, that's not really their game. On and on the list goes. The most recent one that I've heard is that somebody says when they would take the bodies off of crosses, they would typically throw them uh, to the dogs. And so that's what happened with Jesus. And that, I mean, that's an interesting theory. It's significant that it hasn't really shown up until the last 50 years, that nobody at the time actually thought to bring it up because it didn't cross their mind. It didn't actually happen that way. The most reasonable answer to the, the question, why is the body not there, is because Jesus, Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Oh, look at that. Well done. Some of you are paying attention. I was worried I'd put you to sleep at this point. See, here's the reality. It is true. The church came about because the disciples were going around proclaiming that they had seen the man crucified on Friday risen and victorious over death. And this matters eternally. And this is where I want to get to the second reason why I think it matters for us, why I think my friend would need to know that this matters. It's not just an interesting fact of history that a guy who's crucified also came back to life. It's not just an interesting sort of tidbit on the historical map. But actually, what we need to remember is that this man who died and rose again is the Son of God who has overcome sin, death, and the devil by his dying and his rising. And it gives you and me hope. 
That is our second reason today. That this resurrection of Jesus gives us hope, and it's the only thing in the world that will. We are starved for hope right now. People are searching like crazy for something that they can put their hope in. And we got plenty of people out there trying to sell us hope. Many of them are vying for your votes. Everybody is up there telling you, vote for me and I'm going to fix all the problems. And how am I going to fix all the problems? By defeating the people that you don't like. But do you really have hope in that? Do you really think the next election cycle is going to solve all of our problems? You know what? It's not, <laughs> just in case you weren't clear. It's not going to work. In fact, what we see right now is that everything we're turning to for hope in our society is actually making things worse and bringing about more division. And we are divided over everything right now. We're divided over economics, gender roles, babies being allowed to live in their mother's womb, racial issues, the definition of a man or a woman. Uh, uh, all of these things are dividing. We're divided over the weather. If you used to want to have an innocuous conversation, if you used to want to make small talk, you would talk about the weather. Now, you want to kill the other person because they don't agree with you about climate change. We've, I mean, we've made the weather political. It's insane. As we look outside of ourselves, or even within inside of ourselves, for anything to give us hope, anything outside of us with power to give us hope, it only makes us feel more helpless and hopeless. Like we can't do anything. And you know why that is? Because we are helpless and we can't do anything. Not only that, we are responsible for the damage we see going on all around us. The more we try to fix it, the worse things seem to get. This is a mess of our own making. It's what we here in the church call sin. And we need to be very clear on this. Sin is not just, you know, breaking a few Piccadilly little rules here that upset the establishment or something like that. Sin is rebellion against our Creator and against His design for this world. It is an attempt to take from God what is rightfully His and use it for our own selfish purposes and our own selfish design. It is exploiting all that is true and good and beautiful in this world to feed our own belly. We serve ourselves over and against God and thus we turn against our neighbors whom God has created for us to love, but who we only are really going to like so long as they help support us in our own personal projects. Once they get in the way, we can dismiss them. We use them and we let them go. God created us this wonderful creation to live in, to love in, to work in, to play in, to celebrate life with him and one another in. And we have rebelled and rejected him and ruined everything around us. All of this deserves judgment. And the judgment for such sin and rebellion is death. Death is the judgment our sin deserves. So that what the resurrection of Jesus means and why you should care is because it shows you that God cares more about you than you can possibly imagine. He cares about you, and he cares about me, and he cares about this world. What the resurrection of Jesus means is that God has chosen to do something about our sin and its negative repercussions on the world around us. He has decided, this is a wonderful way to think about it, he has decided to make all things new. I love that scene. 
where Mary is, is in the garden and she's outside the tomb and she's weeping because she doesn't know where Jesus is. And she looks over and with tears in her eyes, she sees a man and she can't really make out who he is. He's not immediately familiar to her. So she assumes for one reason or another that he's the gardener. And so she's crying and, and, and Jesus, who she doesn't know is Jesus, addresses her and says, woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and in Aramaic said, Rabboni, which means teacher, is a beautiful scene where Mary's entire world is flipped upside down. Everything is changing. And what we see taking place there in that moment in the garden is sort of an uh, encapsulation or, or just a little hint of everything that Jesus is accomplishing with his resurrection. The first thing we see him accomplishing there is this, is that by coming back from the grave, he has shown us that death is not as powerful as we once thought. But now it is temporary. Death has what we might say is a chink in the armor. Think about it. Death comes as punishment for sin. But Jesus, who never sinned, took our punishment for our sins upon himself on Good Friday and died in our place. And because Jesus had never sinned, death had no hold over him. In fact, death had one rule that it could follow. Death's rule is this. You can only have sinners. So when death swallowed Christ, you might think of it this way, death sinned. So now death, because of its own sin, deserves its own death. Now, Jesus pulled one on death. Jesus went to that cross, and he was no sinner, but he sure dressed up like one. He came to you, and he took all of your sins upon himself. He took every sinful thought, word, deed, action, everything sinful about us. Jesus took on to himself, and he clothed himself as the chief sinner, and he died in our place on the cross taking our sins with him into the tomb. But when death realized it could not hold Jesus, Jesus destroyed it from the inside. And he came out alive, leaving your sins behind in the grave, never to be brought up again. Which means that because of Jesus' dying and rising, your sins are forgiven, and you stand before God on account of Christ, declared righteous and holy. The judgment against your sinfulness. Jesus said on Good Friday, it is finished. And on Easter Sunday, came forth proclaiming the victory for you. God, on account of Christ, will hold your sins against you no longer so that when you stand before God on the day of judgment, and make no mistake, the day of judgment is coming. For you and I who are in Christ Jesus, we will stand before God and we will hear the verdict that says, not guilty. You are free. Well done. Because Christ has given you the credit for everything he's accomplished. He took your sin upon, your, upon himself. Now I suppose you could try and stand there before God on your own merits. You could try and stand there and sort of Prove to God that you didn't need Jesus. You were doing just fine on your own. Besides, your rebellion wasn't nearly as bad as their rebellion over there. You were a much better rebel uh, than they were. But listen, there's not a lot of hope in that. The only hope you have 
is that Jesus Christ has died and has risen for you. But you do have that hope, that confidence, because he's promised it to you. And then having all of this, notice then what Jesus does for Mary. He takes all that is sad and he reverses it. Not only for Mary, now do we see that her sins are forgiven, that death is overcome. We also find that Jesus is undoing the damage of all of this. He takes uh, Mary's tears and he turns them to joy. Weeping becomes laughing and praising. This is what Easter is all about. Jesus taking the dark night of sorrow and sin, destroying it, and turning it into the eternal light of laughter and praise in his love. This, you see, is what is coming when he returns, and he's promised it to you and to me. Just like Mary, you and I will see Jesus face to face, smiling and laughing, and we will weep no more. Your sin and death will be gone. We will see the face of Christ smiling upon us. Finally, what we see him doing here in the garden is not only doing all of this for us, but also preparing for us a home, a perfect home for us to live in, a new heavens and a new earth. I've said this before, but, but this, I love how Mary here makes a mistake in the right way. She thinks Jesus is the gardener. Why? Well, perhaps because he's weeding. He's pulling out all that has ruined the garden. He's undoing the effects and the damage of sin. And not just with the weeds themselves in the garden, but we'll see when he comes again how he does this with everything that oppresses us. For when Christ comes again, all hatred, slander, war, racism, sexism, exploitation, whatever else you want to throw in there, will be done away with and all the devil's work will be gone. And those things which we fear so much now will be called the former things. For Christ has risen to give us deathless life. He is making all things new. He began this at his resurrection. And this is what we will enjoy with him in the new creation for all of eternity. The best part is, it's all true. This is no religious myth, guys. This is no pie-in-the-sky stuff. It isn't a sort of whatever-gets-you-through-the-night kind of message I'm giving you here today. This is the promise and the work of the Almighty God for you who took on your flesh to forgive your sins and give you the promise of everlasting life. Why does this matter? At the end of the day, at the end of all things, it's the only thing that matters. And that's why Jesus Christ has done it. Because you matter to him. And he loves you with this everlasting love. Amen. We pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the salvation which you have accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. We pray today, O Lord, that you will convince us of the truth of the matter, that you would give us confident faith in Jesus, who is our Savior. Even more so, give us confident faith in the promises that our sins are forgiven and eternal life is promised to us. Cling to us with your promises, even as we cling to them. In Jesus' name, amen.